That's the end of our series on the book of Revelation, and it's the end of the Bible, and it's the end of the book of Revelation too. So let's pray and ask for God's help in understanding these words that we've heard. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives for the glory of your great name. Amen. How will it all end? To be human is to feel like you've been plunged into the middle of a great story. In the middle of the story, as with all stories, there's chaos and disorder. Sometimes evil seems to get the upper hand, but sometimes we get a glimpse of something better. And we always ask, as we do with any story, what's the ending going to be? How a story ends, of course, changes how we think of the whole story. The great Russian composer Sergei Prokofiev, he thought that Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet was uh, a bit of a downer, frankly. Uh, I mean, it, ends, it, it doesn't end well um, because people that Romeo and Juliet die. There's no happily ever after. So when he composed a ballet version of the play, he added a happy ending. After all, he said, the dead cannot dance. That's my Russian accent. The dead cannot dance, which he, I guess he's right. But Stalin's henchmen didn't like it, and they made him change it to make it like the original. And I imagine they said, in Soviet Russia, we don't do happy endings. Now, I think they, that Stalin's henchmen were actually right here. Making Romeo and Juliet live happily ever after makes it a completely different story. Now, if you are living in the middle of a story, what kind of story is it? If your life is a story, what is the story of your life like? Is it an heroic epic where things get better and better and you just move from one triumph onto the next? Or maybe it's a comedy, a comedy where things seem to just get sorted out in the end. Or a romance, because at the centre of your life is a significant relationship. Or is it more like a tragedy, a tale of suffering, and woe that ends in despair. The trouble is that though you don't really get to choose which story, uh, you, you don't actually get to choose which sort of story your life will be. And for all of us, death is the end. Unavoidably, even though we try to take control, even though we try to be the narrators of our own stories, our stories end in tragedy, not in triumph. Now, the book of Revelation paints for us a very different picture of the end. It's a vision of the end of a story given to us who are living in the middle of it. And, of course, as with all the book of Revelation, it's given to us in vivid uh, symbols and images. And it tells us the story ends with God coming to live with his people, which means that there is a new heaven and a new earth. That there's an end to suffering and sadness and death. And that everything that is evil will be shut out. So God comes to live with his people. You know, there's nothing invisible about God in this picture, is there? We cannot see God now. But in this picture, you cannot miss God. Not only can you see God, you can see everything by the light which God creates. I mean, 
It's a pretty strong light, isn't it? There's no need for any lamps in this city. There's no need for a power station to generate watts and watts of power because God and the Lamb generate enough wattage to light the whole thing day and night. There are no dark spaces anymore. It's so bright, you can barely look at it. Of course, you shouldn't look at the sun just as a sidebar, even when there's an eclipse, although apparently President Trump didn't know this a few weeks ago and he took a peek, which is a little bit alarming. God living with people, though. This has been something God has been on about ever since the beginning of the whole creation. God has wanted to share his life and he's made us his creatures, made us in his image to share in him, to share his life with him. You might remember from the story of Abraham. Abraham was told back in Genesis chapter 12 that God wanted to live with him, that God wanted to make him a people, that he would be their God and they would be his people. Like a fiancé, he wants nothing better than to be finally married to his bride. And that's why this city in the picture that we have of the, of the final scene, this city is also a bride at the same time, if we can get our heads around that picture. You might remember too that Jesus' other name was Emmanuel, which means, of course, God with us. God wants to live with his people. Now, what can it mean to say that God lives with people? The way the Bible puts it, is that who God is just fills everything. Everything and everyone who God loves is there. It's his place and it shines with his character, with his flavour. It tastes like God. He's built it to be there with his people. It is holy like he is. It is beautiful like he is. It is good like he is. And it is true like he is. It's a city. It's a city because a city is filled with people. And this scene is all about living together, people living together with God. The other thing about this scene is the word new. This is a new heaven and a new earth. God builds for his people a new creation which looks like the old one but is deeper and richer and more radiant. We're not transported, you notice, up to some cloud, to some sort of waffly nothing. But God, rather, comes down and revamps everything about this world. He makes all things new. That's what he says. See, I'm making all things new. And what's new about the new heavens and the new earth? Well, we get a bit of a clue when John tells us that there was no longer any sea. Now, this seems a little bit strange, and it's a bit—it's bad news if you're a yachty or a surfer. Is that what you're supposed to be kind of disappointed here if you're actually like sea and water sports? But in the Bible, the sea is always a symbol of destruction and chaos. In those days, in, in these days, I should say, of Hurricane Irma and tsunami warnings, you can understand how that might work. But the new heavens and the new earth, they do not have that chaos and destruction in them. They are a place of perfect peace. And that is what's new. The voice from the throne says in verse 4, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. There is water in this city. But what kind of water is it? It's the water of life. And the tree of life grows there with healing in its leaves. 
This is water that is about peace and life and healing, not about chaos and destruction. This new world that we're asked to dream about is a world in which everything will be as it was meant to be, as it was intended by the Creator to be. It's God's, it's a scene of God's perfect peace where there is no war or disease or death. Can you imagine a place where there is no mourning? No cancer, no arthritis, no motor neuron disease, and so on. The one thing we know for sure in this world is that any relationship we have will end in separation, one way or another. We know that death stalks us all. He's a completely equal opportunity kind of guy. But we also know, and we should never forget this, how deeply wrong death is. It's absurd, death. Death is a blasphemy against life. Now, just yesterday uh, in my family, we, re- we remembered the 21st anniversary of my nephew Jonathan's birthday, which was also the day of his death. He died at birth. If he had lived, he would now be a strapping young man in the middle of his university degree, thinking about his life ahead. But he never even took a single breath. And as I held him in my arms on the day of his birth, his lifeless body, I remember thinking in the midst of sadness, this should not be. This should not be. This is a blasphemy against life itself. And I know you can repeat experiences like that in your own life. That terrible experience is not part of the new heaven and the new earth because at the centre of the glorious city is who? It's the Lamb, Jesus, who was slain and yet rose from the dead that first Easter day which we heard read about from the Gospel of Mark. Death, we find, has been defeated. Now, I know there will have been one part of this vision that uh, probably will have disturbed you, though, and made you feel a little bit more uncomfortable, and that's 21 verse 8. And I'm sure you kind of read this and thought, hang on a minute, it was going so well, it was such a beautiful scene until we came to verse 8. Couldn't I have cut that out? As for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters and all the liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Doesn't this sound a little bit exclusive and intolerant and judgmental? Well, there's two things we need to remember here. The first is that the list of things that we have here, all of those, are things that can be and are forgiven in Jesus Christ. These are the things for which Jesus himself died. And there are those who are God's children who have been all of those things. If we need evidence, we just have to read the Bible a little bit and find out the many examples throughout the Bible of people who were these things and yet became part of God's people. The prostitutes who followed Jesus. Paul, who murdered the Christians. The faithlessness of the Apostle Peter. And we could go on and on. But secondly, we really do long for this place to be a place where evil is excluded. We cry out against injustice and evil. We wish for it to be gone. If we're to have a place of complete peace and justice, 
then we can't imagine that those who continue to want to wreck those things can be a part of it. We need to have God's promise that evil and chaos and death and those who persist in pursuing them are ultimately rejected. We need to hear that God stands opposed to the evil that we suffer and to the evil that you and I do. We live in a world in which things do have consequences. As that great uh, New Zealand theologian Russell Crowe once said, what we do in life echoes in eternity. What's shut out from this picture is what makes it worth longing for. But the point for us is this. You have an invitation, whoever you are, to be a part of this extraordinary story. To become a Christian is to give up trying to tell your own or make your own story. Because without God, human stories only have a single ending. And instead, to be part of this beautiful, extraordinary story. Now, I was thinking a lot about the new heavens and the new earth this week and trying to think what occupations will and won't be needed there. Uh, Now, I've got two lists, and I think it says a lot about what we're looking forward to. Uh, So here's some occupations that won't be needed in the new heavens and the new earth. Police, for one. Doctors and nurses and all medical professionals won't be needed in the new heaven and the new earth. I'm not meaning to give any offence, by the way. Ambulance officers, not needed. Uh, lawyers, definitely definitely not needed in the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, funeral directors, morticians, uh, soldiers, sailors and the Air Force, not needed in the new heaven and the earth. Bankers, not needed in the new heaven and the new earth because the streets are paved with gold. We don't need you, I'm sorry. Politicians, grief counsellors, mental health experts... And clergy, not needed in the new heaven and the new earth, because everyone will know God, so I'll be out of a job. Now, occupations that will be needed in the new heavens and the new earth are gardeners. Maybe you need to do some retraining. Uh, Gardeners, caterers and chefs, because we hear that it is an extraordinary banquet. Event managers, winemakers and sommeliers, artists, musicians. Uh, Mind you, Bach and Handel will be there. So you'll have to be very, very good. Lyricists and poets, goldsmiths, storytellers, librarians and curators to present the treasures that humankind has under the hand of God uh, worked on all these centuries. Comedians and kings. There'll be kings there because we hear that the kings will be casting down their golden crowns to show who really is the king of kings. So now, if this is the end of the story, what does it mean for us who are living in the middle of the story? What do you and I do now? Well, we do three things. First of all, we need to recognise, to recognise that the world we live in now is not what it's supposed to be. It's too easy for us living in this beautiful place to think we've arrived in the Golden City. With respect to Wallara Council, who the new council, I no doubt, will do a wonderful job at making Wallara a wonderful place to live, but we have not arrived in the Golden City. Things may be nice for you at the moment, but there is a great shadow cast across the world. Our world is blighted. At the moment, the world is a place of mourning and suffering and death. 
We need to feel this tension. There is much to weep about in our world. We are far too easily satisfied with our life here, far too resigned to the way things are, when things are going well especially. It's like thinking that a Big Mac is the best food there is when there's a gourmet meal waiting for you. We need to recognise that things are not as they should be. But secondly, we need to rejoice because this world is passing away. We know that there's a better world to come. We can see its traces in this world, like the first rays of sun glimpsing, peeking over the horizon in the dawn. We know that evil and death, though they are not illusions, as some say, are only temporary. They will not win in the end. So recognise, but also rejoice. And lastly, we've got work to do. We should be very busy with this vision in mind. There was a great preacher from the 17th century, a man called Richard Baxter. And uh, he used to, in the 1600s, he used to spend time each day meditating on heaven. Now, some people might say, ah, you're so obsessed with heaven, you're no earthly use. And he actually thought this was entirely wrong. In fact, it was the opposite. The more he contemplated heaven, he said, the more I am turned to do good things, the, thing God, the things God wants in the world today. He thought it was vital for Christians to ponder on heaven all the time. It wasn't a waste of time to do it. Far from it. He wrote this. When we frequently think of our everlasting treasure, that is heaven, we are powerfully motivated in our Christian service. The Christian who concentrates on heaven is more useful to other people and better company. More useful to other people and better company. I love that idea that by contemplating the new heavens and the new earth, we will be more useful to other people and certainly better company. We will recognise the world is not as it should be and work to make it more and more like the world it will one day be. But we will also rejoice because the old order of things is passing away and God is making all things new. If you keep this picture of the world to come in mind, you will be a more real and yet more joyful person. You will be able to recognise and name evil and pain when you see them. But you will have a joy that few people have, even when things make you weep. Your own story will not turn out to be a tragedy. And you will be busy preparing the world for its destiny, helping people to see God as he will one day be unmistakably and gloriously seen, showing by your life, by the way you use your body and your time and your things, that he will one day fill the heavens and the earth with his glory as the waters cover the sea. Amen.